Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Miranda Ayim podcast, what I hope will be a thoughtful and engaging conversation and series on everything that goes into high performance from focus and high-level habits to emotional intelligence and team dynamics. I'm Miranda Ayim, a two-time Olympian with Team Canada, and today I'm joined by Bryce Tully, an expert in this area. Bryce is the co-founder and CEO of InnerLogic, a platform devoted to helping organizations optimize their culture, leadership, and emotional intelligence. He is also a mental performance coach with the Canadian Olympic team, specializing in team dynamics, self-regulation, and environmental design. Bryce is also regarded as one of Canada's top up-and-coming mindset and culture experts, as well as a key innovator in the space of social-emotional measurement. In the conversation today, we get into the role of traits, skills, and values in individual development, the importance of defining values and creating buy-in on a team, and we also get into competing motivations in a team environment, and much more. I really enjoyed chatting with Bryce, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, thank you, Bryce, for being here today. I'm so happy that you were able to join me. Oh my gosh! Every I'm gonna bat a 100% batting average on on your requests for these things. I'm so, so excited! I'm so excited! Like when we. <laughs> Like when we were arranging this, we said how how refreshing it was that we were just on the same page and able to to get our schedule aligned so quickly. I'm like, are you available at this date? Yes. All right, let's do it. It's just one of those things that you just find you find time for things that you value. I think, mm. and so it makes scheduling very easy. Like mm. you, when you said to me, like, oh my gosh, this was such a easy or refreshing scheduling process. I was like, it's a no-brainer. I you just it. send the thing, then they'll look at the schedule and go, oh, there's a slot. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Slide if it it's in. something you don't want to do or someone you don't want to talk to, God forbid, then that's when I think people start to go, oh, uh, you know, this week and next week are really full. Week after is looking kind of tough. Da, 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 da. I 100% agree. Although the problem with that is that when someone is busy like that, I automatically um, automatically assume like, you don't want to talk to me. It's over with. I get it. <laughs> I just won't ever send you a message again. It's all right. <laughs> but sometimes people Maybe actually are busy. They are busy. They are busy. And like, look at it like a challenge. Like, what could I do? What could I be doing differently that would compel you to want to have this conversation? And we're already right into it. You're already dropping gems and we haven't even asked the first question. I love it. This is why I love chatting with you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering if we can just start off with you kind of giving us a background of how you got into this field of culture, leadership, emotional intelligence. Um, what's so intriguing about it to you? Where do you see it leading in the future, whether for you personally or for the field in general? Okay. Light question. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't kidding. We're right into it. We're into it. Um, yeah. So I guess the, 
the 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 most efficient and clearest way for me to say this because I I think I've fumbled this question a couple times in the past with people, and and not like uh, you know on video chats but just in life. Um, I think the main thing is when I was going through school, I I was in kinesiology and I really just had like this uh, natural affinity for anything that was more subjective and based on feel and intuition and gut and like reading, you know, intangible things. And some of my friends, like one of my roommates who's, who's uh, now a dentist for him, it was all about the, the proven, the tangible, the, you know, someone's already solved this equation, but I need to learn how to do it because if I learn how to do it, then, you know, that's a milestone towards, knowing all these already established things. And that's, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way about that field or that space. It just never appealed to me. I, I was always in that space of like, if something's already been done so concretely, I'm a little, I'm a little bit put off by it. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to just learn the exact way that somebody else did something. I'm way more curious than that was, was basically where I landed. And so but, but I was still very, I really had a huge respect for, for science and I loved reading like really good science. Like I loved reading something that would explain something to me in a different way uh, or in a way that made it, you know, so much uh, more clear. And so I was kind of stuck in between going, well, how do you like leverage this personality type and this skill set? And the other piece that kind of fell into that was Everyone in my class would always say to me, like, you know, the presentations, whenever we have to do presentations, I feel like that's just like your comfort zone. And, you know, they would get nervous for days. And, um, you know, I, I really, I do better in presentations when I'm not like memorizing things. And it all goes back to that same concept. Like I can't memorize something and just recite it. Mm -hmm. I have to feel it. Like I have to know it. And, and then read the room and then say it the way that that room in particular needs to hear it, not here's how I planned it and I'm just going to do it. And that kind of led me to discovering sports psychology as this like amalgamation of things that I really liked. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was in sport. Um, I, I also, music was a big part of my life. I played music my whole life. And I always saw that as like a performing or performance. And I had... I still have performance anxiety when it comes to music, but only in music, like every other thing I kind of like performing, I really thrive on it, but with music, it's different. Interesting. And uh, yeah, so all those things kind of came together and I was like, what a cool space, like performance psychology is just, you know, all of us are trying to perform in some way or another. And so I pursued that and only after pursuing it did I learn just how significant the team dynamic elements of this were like i'm one person who's got you know all this complexity that you know I, I think it's complexity to my own history and life experiences and how it shaped me and then you combine that with 10 12 20 30 other people and have to work towards something concrete and common and and very directional and that piece just struck me as such a big opportunity because there's, you know, there, there's nothing uh, super tangible about that yet. 
right? It, it's still such a work in progress in terms of um, nailing down and mastering, like what's the dynamic of this group, of this room, of this team, and how do we get everyone pulling in the same direction and kind of factoring in all these different personalities and experiences and likes and dislikes and values and team values, personal values. So all of it is just very interesting to me and how it works towards something performance oriented. So I don't know if I did any better on that than I have in the past, but I've definitely, I've at least brought in the factors that I wanted to, I will say that. <laughs> well, it was definitely interesting and for sure we're going to touch on the, the team part in a little bit. Um, but I'm curious because it's such a strength to actually consciously kind of set aside memorizing things and as far as like performance goes, what is this just like an ingrained characteristic of yours that you embrace this like being in the moment reading the re reading the room and and reacting like that because those are all performance skills that most people have to learn and learn to embrace and not run away from and then just seems like it, it came naturally to you so have you ever mentally broken down why you are that way or um what events in your life maybe uh, prompted you to uh, embrace that? I think there's a couple of traits that really, um, uh, what's the word? Not predict. In, in some cases, like empirically, they do predict certain behaviors, but they, you know, they're more probably correlated to why I act like that. You know, I think personality does have a, a big part to do with it. Like, I have a, I score very high on openness to experience. So like new things are exciting for me. Like, you know, it's very easy for me to look at something new or something that's changed or, uh, you know, a situation which we have to adapt as a challenge, as like a new journey to, to solve <laughs> or a new puzzle to solve. Um, Whereas, you know, people who score very low in openness to experience are, are much more uh, keen to stay on the course that's been set and to, to stay on that path. And, you know, it's tried and true no matter what. And, you know, when you're working with other people and when you're working as a staff, that's where it becomes really complex because, you know, there's situations even with our team, like the national team, where when things change in our environment, my, my first inclination is like, let's roll with this change and just, you know, totally change course and just do this the best way we can. But there's always going to be other staff members, players, people who are like, no, like we said, we had a plan, like, let's stick with the plan. And if we're off the plan, that must mean something's wrong. Hmm. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I totally appreciate that. And I think those people typically tend to score quite high in conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they really pay attention to those details leading into an event. They, they, things happen in their brain in a particular order. And when that order gets rearranged, it's very difficult to feel confident that this is, you know, a situation in which I can excel in because the situation that I excelled in, in my mind leading into this was, was completely mapped over top of it looking this way and being in this order. And so, you know, I think just building it's, there's always downsides to this stuff too, but I've always felt grateful for the natural confidence that I have to, to do something 
kind of on the fly, basically. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I find myself straddling the two uh, personality traits that you kind of uh, sketched out conscious, conscientiousness and openness, which I guess uh, was kind of popu popularized by um, Carol Dweck with her growth mind mindset versus uh, what's the other one? Fixed mindset. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is that we're not necessarily one or the other. We're a combination of both, which totally makes sense when I'm entering one uh, situation and realizing like, okay, yeah, I'm open. Let's roll with the punches. I'm yeah, we can fix and adjust, you know, that's cool. And other situations where I'm absolutely no, this is what we said. This is what I want to do. Exactly. Like you said, let's follow the plan and let's stick to the script. Uh, and it, it's interesting to see the interplay between those two, especially as you said, as that gets multiplied by 12, 15, 20, however many people you have on your team. And then that that's what creates uh, the culture mm -hmm. vibes. Yeah. And these things are, they're, they're continuums, right? They're not like the, 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 one of the biggest misconceptions that I've seen popular popularized recently is people putting out articles saying how to work, you know, as a leader, how to work with introverts. Mm. And there, there's no such thing as introverts. You can't be 100% introverted. It's if you were, you'd be in a, a, an incredibly, when you look at the traits of or the characteristics of the introversion trait, if you had all of those traits at 100%, it, it'd be a really unrealistic scenario and we know very 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 few people live in that space mm -hmm. so everyone has some elements of both right so you're on a continuum you can you can score higher up the continuum on extroversion or or more down towards introversion but that doesn't mean you have 100 percent extroverted or introverted traits so there's always parts of you that function more on that other side of the continuum that create that nice balance that you need. So you might be 90% extroverted as an example, but you know, in that, in that 10% of the time, um, you know, you need a few minutes by yourself to recharge, or you like to be alone before you um, go to sleep, or you really appreciate time in the shower, or, you know, like just these little things that help you not be a head exploding extrovert that needs stimulation 24 seven. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. these, it's how these things kind of present themselves and, and, you know, show up um, in different situations and, and learning about yourself to that level or to that level of uh, granularity is really challenging, right? Because people love to create these binary situations like, Oh, I'm an introvert and my wife's an extrovert. So that means that this, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, no, if that's your approach, you're, you're going to run into all kinds of confusing situations that really dispel that model. I mean, I understand the impulse because simplicity is so much easier on our brains. It's like we, why we enjoy stereotypes and clumping people into different groups and it's less effort. It makes, it's just a lot easier for us, but it's, it's understandable when that, when we reach into that complex area, that that's where we really get into the meat of what I find super interesting as far as learning about yourself as an individual, who you are, the complex 
uh, often contradictory nature of ourselves. And then also seeing that in other people and acknowledging the same contradictions and complexity. And I think that's both enlightening and also leads to a lot more empathy, which is so useful, especially when you're in a team or a group environment where you actually have to get along with and work with and collaborate with other people. It's culture in a nut f- nutshell. Uh, speaking mm. of nutshells, how exactly? <laughs> what oh, a okay. segue! The next part of this. Let's go. <laughs> I don't have a nutshell analogy, but I just wanted to know how would you define culture, and why is it something that's worth uh, noting or paying attention to? Yeah. Oh man, such a such a big topic. Um, culture is a lot of things and it's hard to boil it down. And it, it really feels like a moving target to a lot of, um, you know, leaders, companies, teams. So, you know, I, for my own, you know, this goes right to your last point for my own sake, I've had to, you know, look at it a certain way. And that way is a more simplified way to just feel any sense of confidence or clarity in, in, in dealing with it. So I totally appreciate what you just said about, you know, the cause of why we do that. Cause I've done it in this case a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a few parts to, to this equation. Um, I always believe that values, skills, and traits are like the, the ultimate sort of trio. Um, when it comes to both people and to groups and it's how these things interact with one another that, that really start, you know, to, to unveil the, the culture of a, of a team or of a group. And of course, there's all kinds of things that you can do that, you know, there's lots of good uh, strategies and information as to how to patch on certain externally driven things that, you know, help a group work towards something in a, in a uh, unified way. But that to me doesn't change the fact that, you know, the personality traits in that group are, are going to show up at some point. They're very in, innate, uh, distinct attributes of each member. Um, you know, the values of each person play a role in that process, despite the fact that you might have great values on your website and, and you might do a great job with values, um, in your, you know, in your organization and, and you, you try your best to instill those as to embody, you know, what your, what your brand is or what your team is, but there's always individual values in there too. And I think it's naive to think that those aren't going to show up and those aren't going to play a role. And I've seen a lot of leaders get hung up on, oh, well, you know, this is a, this problem is an easy solve. We have this value. And these people are showing this other value. And so, you know, we just need to tell them that they need to value this, not those. (laughs) It's like, well, wait a minute, (laughs) dig into the, you know, the science of of values, that's going to be a lot uh, harder to do than to say. And so I think that plays a big role. And then, you know, the, 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 the most growth mindset oriented part of this is the skills. And I've always been torn, like, philosophically torn on if someone lacks, you know, a certain trait that 
is impeding their ability to perform. And they recognize that. And then they start to build in habits and, and uh, behaviors that kind of help patch that gap. Does that change their personality? Like if I, if I am not very conscientious, but it's really required for me to be conscientious in some parts of my job or performance to be world-class and I start learning how to do that. At what stage does that transfer from, oh, I've just built the skills, you know, the preparation skills, the, um, you know, whatever situations it is to be more conscientious. When does that transfer to, I'm just now more conscientious as a person, mm. the research would say it's a very long time. Like that window is huge to, to actually influence um, the way that your personality results would, would uh, represent that. So for that reason, skills are super important because you know from our experiences on the national team that you know, you're not changing people's personality, but if we create the right environment and we have the right things in place and we work on it all the time, for four months of the year, we can utilize skills that really patch over some of these things, values, traits that are not acting in service of our goal if we leave that environment and we're apart for long enough, those things will go away just like any other skill, right? Like if, if we go with the national team and we practice free throws five times as much as any other place that you train and we use mental training as part of it, physical training and, and, you know, all this other stuff is, is layered in there. It's like, great. That's probably going to get better. If we have enough time together, you leave, you stop doing it. It goes away. And I think that's the role that skills play in this. You want to build skills for long enough that they become habits and they become, you know, they, they enter that automatic system. Um, but you got to get repetitions in or skills will, will go away. So those are the three things that play um, values, skills, traits that always show up in some way or another. And just very quickly, I just add on top of that, the social strategies or the social emotional strategies of the leadership and of the group then have to take that like conglomerate <laughs> of things. And like, you know, it, it almost looks like a lava lamp, like moving in, in, a, in a certain direction. And I always think of like a regression line when you think of this, like when you add a regression line to a graph, it takes all these disparate data points and shows you, but here's the general trend. Mm -hmm. and and that's what you're going for is like that r value line is like it's gonna like shift and move and kind of sometimes feel like you took a downturn but over a long period of time when we plot that regression line there where is it leading yeah. and and that's the role that i think the leadership and the external forces and factors play in culture is lead it in a direction but that doesn't mean that everyone's working perfect all the time with one another that just made me think of you know when you go bowling and you're a kid and they put up those little bumper things on the side so it's still like you have the whole alleyway but you're kind of like bowl and it's gonna go back and forth and blah 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 and the culture to me it seems like it's kind of like just leading us down where we need to hit the pins so maybe we'll we'll hit some of the sides maybe we won't get a strike but at least we're going in the general direction of where we we need to go and you you said something interesting earlier i know that this um triad of 
values, skills, and traits is is fundamental, especially in like leadership and in all this this jazz, um, these areas. Um, and I read something recently, actually from the Ivy School of Business from London, Ontario, Canada, my hometown. Mm. Yes. Um, and they they brought forward an interesting addition to that, uh, which was character. And I think mm. it was an interesting addition just because it it covers some of the areas that you kind of mentioned with skills, like if you build it up to a certain point, does that mean that's who you are or is it just like something that you're doing? And character actually is something, again, that takes such a long time to develop. It requires a, a, a force of habits over time to create. And it is something that can become who you are, even if it's that that's not who you naturally were born as, but through intention and, and uh, repetition and time, it can be something that can be repeated and, and, and part of who you are. And I think it's just as important as the other three in that triad to, to make you both a better human being and to make your, your group something that's um, operating at a high level and with a high level of integrity. Mm. Mm -hmm. Character is such an interesting uh, thing to, to try and pin down because it's a very emotionally evoking word. Like when you ask someone like, do they have good character? You kind of instantaneously trigger like, this is an important question, right? Like this is, you know, I'm, at, I'm getting to the core of this human being by, you know, um, shedding light on their character. Mm -hmm. And so a while, a long time ago, four years ago or three or four years ago now, Mike, our co-founder at Interlogic and I, the first thing we ever did was called Character Code. Mm. And it was this like, I mean, it clearly, it didn't really go anywhere in particular. <laughs> it, it helped to kind of propel us into this, you know, what Interlogic is now, which is good. But the character code was this assessment that was really based on those three factors. So, uh, you know, after a few months of, of looking into character and what it means and how to pin it down, we learned that there's actually enough evidence to say that all three of those factors contribute to it. So on an individual level, in the middle of that Venn diagram is your character, especially when you think about how would, how would somebody else, you know, define or describe your character, people you trust, teams you work on, da, 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 da. You can't just define it by somebody's skills. You can't just define it by somebody's values if they have no skills and, you know, their, their traits are completely against, you know, certain things that vibe with the, the team or the goal. And you can't just do it by their traits because those are very difficult to, to change. But nonetheless, character does encompass, in my opinion, elements of all three of those things. So I think you're bang on in that. I mean, I'm when what I'm saying is triggering character for you, I don't think that's at all a coincidence. I think those things are all involved. Would, would you agree, disagree, challenge that? Yeah, I... I think it's interesting. I'm still struggling probably in the way that you mentioned 
um, philosophically how exactly skills um, fit into that, feed into character, because my initial um, reaction is that character can't be based on skills because skills to me, I guess it depends on how you de define it, is, is act, not action. It's like something that's like, hmm, I don't know what the word would be, but it feels like character has to be above skills, just what you have to offer. You know what I mean? It mm -hmm. seems like, yeah, it seems like skills is something that you offer and character or traits or whatever else is what you are as a, as a person. Mm -hmm. But how would you define sk <laughs> skills in this situation? Oh boy, this is a good one. And we're going into a, a rabbit hole of pure pleasure here in terms of like the conversation <laughs> and where it's going for me. <laughs> awesome. So I'll say, I'll say this when, so I work for hockey Canada. I've done, I've been to a bunch of different events with them and including work with the, you know, the, the players who are, um, in the mix and on the pathway of the world junior team the upcoming year. Yeah. And, you know, we, let's say we go away to uh, Sweden or something for a month and we're together all the time and doing stuff every day, like we would as a team. And at the end of that event, a couple weeks later, you get a form that says, um, you know, we're doing character, assessment or evaluation of the players involved mm -hmm. and for every player they ask you to pick five words that best describe them and this exercise is really interesting from the lens of what category are those words falling into right like if i if i say for some player they're diligent focused um what's like uh, um, humble, uh, integrity. I don't know what the other phrase is for that. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm, you know, like, what are these words? <laughs> like, are they, what am I describing? Right? Like for, yeah. for some of these players, I look down the list and I'm like, two skills, one trait, two values, four values, one skill, mm -hmm. four traits, one value, five skills. It really like is a mixed bag of how, what comes to your mind when you think of this. And I think we so commonly lump these things together, which is why your question is so good. So the example I would give is this. If someone a year before this camp happens is told that their attention to detail and their ability to, to sustain their focus is a problem. And it's holding them back. And they take this to heart and all of a sudden they start working on this every day, right? The only way that they would do that is if they value something about that experience. So they value feedback, let's say, but they also are in what you would describe as a growth mindset. So they value growth, right? So some values have propelled them into a situation where they're now building a skill. So you, those are now connected. Mm -hmm. Like those are tethered together in my opinion. 
And now they're building the skill and they're doing mindfulness every day to improve their ability to focus. And they're working on, um, you know, a daily journaling process that keeps track of their, their pre-performance routines or something. But on their personality test, they score in the fifth percentile of conscientiousness, right? They show up, they're totally locked in, paying attention all the time in team sessions, yada, yada, yada. When they leave the session, they're all over the map. They're back to, you know, being the spacey individual that they are in their social life. And they, you know, they're walking down the street, they get distracted or, or something. But let's just say they're very locked in for these time periods that they have to be because they've improved their focus in those environments and they know what their routine is and the detail that they go through to do it. So this is a really complex scenario. It's like, what role is this stuff playing in their character? From someone on the outside looking in, you know, I could look at that person and go, I know they're pretty flighty and spacey when they're not in a team session, but mm -hmm. they're unbelievable in these team sessions. So what I'm going to call that is discipline right? I, I see it as something actually maybe different than it is because I'm noticing these other factors. So I don't, I don't know what the exact answer is for sure, but I do know that if you can improve your skills to some degree, it will impact, in my opinion, the way in which your character is at least perceived by others. Mm -hmm. Whether it's influencing your character to your core, like fundamentally changing who you are is a deeper philosophical question. I do think it impacts the perception of your character from others because it shows you're willing to grow. It shows that, you know, you've built a skill in a certain context and that resonates with people. Like it just does. I, I don't know how else to describe it. That's what I felt when I filled out these forms. No, that's a beautiful way to, to put it because you, you do see when you kind of lay out each of those characteristics and skills and, and traits that, yeah, you do see some overlap when you put it in, in that uh, context. You know what always throws me off in the world of, especially sports, because I, I see this often, um, people who are so focused and so like killer on the court and um, disciplined uh, in the gym and then other parts of their life, they're the complete opposite, like could not discipline themselves from what getting off their phone or eating whatever, or whatever, whatever the vice that you want to insert in there is, how can they be, how can one be so high performing in one area and totally drop the ball in, in other areas? Oh man, that's another biggie. I think it's, you know, like the, the people in, in the psychology or sport performance psychology world who take a more humanistic, holistic view of, of the skills and whatnot that, you know, we're in the business of helping people improve and enhance mm -hmm. would say that you are trying to, to impact the fundamental uh, you know, way, way of functioning and behavior that kind of uh, transcends those barriers or those contextual barriers. So, you know, you're, you're, you're training that skill as a skill in the human being, and that applies on the court or, you know, at the dinner table. Yeah. There's other people who 
um, I know and work with and trust that actually take the approach of training the performance persona. Mm. So you're literally creating a separation between the two. And, you know, I've even heard of strategies where it's like, well, what's the symbol for when that persona kicks in? Is it when you do your final, you know, you tie your final lace that triggers this different <laughs> mindset and being yeah or is it more natural than that or is it this you know massive desire and um you know level of passion in a particular space that's high enough to get you into a different place whenever you're in in it right mm -hmm. like is it a goal orientation thing yeah or you want it so bad and you're so competitive Mm -hmm. that it, it, it drives you to new heights in this context, but not in other contexts. So there's a lot of different ways to view that. I think we're totally naive in general if we're thinking there's one approach that's going to work for everybody, right? Like, one, like, you know, you should change the way your brain functions and that's going to apply court and dinner table and everything in between. That's not going to work for everybody. There's just other forces at play. The, the level of drive and competitiveness that some people have is astounding. And I think it has like real superpower type <laughs> attributes in it that just bring people to totally new heights. And you just see them switch on in this, in this context. And, you know, I think that's wrapped up in a lot of, a lot of deep things like, you know, a lot of athletes sometimes to a very unhealthy degree uh, identify themselves with their, with their outcomes and with their performance metrics. And, you know, that's who they are. And that can put you in a really interesting, um, intense place when you're, when you're working in that context and training. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to apply to other places because you don't identify with someone who's, who's the best at having dinner with your friends. Um, you know, I'm that person though. Like I'm the more holistic version of this. Like I do take pride in being, you know, focused and attentive and switched on whether it's with friends or, or with a team in a, in a session with you or a team session um, because it's who I want to be as a, you know, as a whole, I value it. I don't think everybody's like that though. I, I think they do have different worlds that they live in and sometimes it's out of survival for them for themselves because they they can't possibly sustain that level of mindset in, in all the different contexts of their life yeah that's it that last part that you said is very interesting like you can't be 100 percent amped up and focused all of the time but i think I've, i fall in the same area as you i prefer consistency and i think throughout my career i have hung my uh, coat on just being a consistent performer, someone that my teammates, my coach um, can can trust and depend on regardless of what's going on, whether we're up, whether we're down. And it's the same off the court. I Cognitive dissonance bothers me. If I am like this on the court, um, what is the difference between when I go home and when I'm, what I'm doing on the court? If I think this is important in my daily life, why would I not show that on the court? And if I find this important on the court, you know, and vice versa. So for, for me and for like you, I love this holistic approach of, 
of trying to to be the best that I can be in every situation. And that usually goes across the board. Obviously, some situations are different. Uh, you can't always be one certain trait in in uh, in a specific context. But uh, I think it's something mm-hmm. s- super interesting to explore and always interesting to to watch people, like you said, who who almost feels like they have a completely different persona. And I've actually talked to someone who mentioned that, how she was creating and, and kind of feeding into this per- persona of like this, this basketball version of herself. And she's one of the best players in the world. So obviously it, it works to a certain extent, but I realized that sometimes it can take its, its toll on the other hand as well. I think the mental strain, like the, the actual um the load like the mental load in that strategy is is very high there's actually members of like people on our uh the team that we share in common being team canada that um over at various time points i i've talked to them about this potential strategy Mm -hmm. because the recognition that they have that something about who i am and my personality is really not helping me at this level of basketball on the court. Yeah. But it's so hard to, to change that because it's who I am that you know I need to almost work on this and patch it on only in this context. Mm. And, and that's a real thing. Like that, you know, it, that's a skill, obviously. That's where skills come into play. But the mental load of that is very high because you're you're really you know, in some cases you're swimming against the current of your biology to achieve a goal, <laughs> which is, you know, it, it's obviously uh, a more flow-like state if you're, you know, just embracing the nature of your natural wiring and whatnot towards a goal. But there are cases where people are like, it's just not working. Like it worked at this level, but now it's, you know, maybe it's like to crack the, the, the 12, the, the roster of Team Canada, there's a gap there. And you, filling that gap is tough because it's like, do I change who I am or do I just do this thing better on the court? <laughs> and sometimes in the time frame that you have, it's let's work on building the skill just in the context on the court. Yeah, what a conundrum. I think people find that in not just in sports, but probably in the in the office space or school space where you feel like you don't necessarily have the skills to do what you need to to do. And you kind of create a a mighty Miranda to accomplish this task. And I wonder, does it have to do also and you speak about this quite a bit with um motivation as well like the different motivators that push us towards different actions like if we aren't if you're the type of person that can't just naturally do this and naturally flow into this state but the motivation is high enough does that supersede that uh inherent lack for lack of a better word i'm thinking of the of the different versions of motivation on that spectrum and I'm, I always put motivation in the context of their self, self-drivers, self right? We've talked about this lots. But as you get more to the more powerful, sustainable levels of motivation, which always is in the context of self-drivers, you do get to, to um, you know, the final two tiers is like, it, it's 
I do this because it's a, it, I can't remember the exact phrasing, a representation or an embodiment of who I am. Right. Like you, you get to that, to that level. That's kind of different than what you're saying. It's more on the other end of the motivational spectrum of I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing this because I want the reward, right? I want that extrinsic reward. So it's a riskier play. I think it's a less sustainable, it's more of a tightrope, you know, when you're using just the motivation to, to be the driver of, you know, changing this behavior. If you get closer to that other end, you know, because it's, it's who I am or, or I'm doing it because I want to be more like this in general, I think that's a lot more sustainable. That, that's always the approach that I take in my own life and what I would, you know, propose and suggest to everyone and anyone as many times as possible is like, what about this thing that we're upskilling is valuable or something that you value or represents some version of you that, that you really are proud of, not just in the post, in a, you know, in a basketball game, yeah. not just when you're calling for the basketball. Um, you know, because there's lots of other, if you can cross all those contextual boundaries and, and find the iterations of it that show up in other places, like, you know, it would really help me in my relationships. It would really help me in my pursuit of these, you know, work or school goals. It would really help me here. It's not going to look the same in every case, but if that skill is, you know, kind of molding to, to different versions of, of you that you are, are really pursuing, I think that's the ideal. Mm -hmm. So now that's different than purpose. So, yeah. Cause that's, uh, yeah, we won't get into that, but in the motivational spectrum, I think that's where it would fall. Yeah. So I wonder if we could take that motivation spectrum and apply it to goal setting or productivity, wherein someone's looking for a way to motivate themselves and are, are failing at the moment. Uh, how do they cue into, what are some practical ways that they can cue into those self-drivers um, that, are, that, are, that are helpful that will motivate them into doing and achieving the things that they, they do want to achieve. Mm. Yeah. Good. Jeez. You're, good question. You're, uh, <laughs> I just want to, I, 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 my own uh, personality works against me against me. Cause I'm like, oh, it's a one-time recording and I know I'm going to oh, please look back on these things and be like, Oh, I should have said this. And I'm going to look um, back at them and I'm going to be like, what kind of question was that? <laughs> Ridiculous. No, your are great. <laughs> You're always dialed into the, the right stuff. Um, I, I think generally speaking, so I, I listened to this, this book um, called, I think it's called the hinge and the, the, the general, uh, just to give you a really quick summary of what that represents. The hinge is this analogy, or I guess it's symbolic for turning any barrier or door into a, uh, sorry, any barrier or wall into a door. Okay. Right. Like anything can, can 
be, uh, you can walk through anything if you find the right hinge that makes it kind of swing open was, like that was the general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember being really drawn into this idea as I was listening to this book that the biggest barriers that we face, the, the most successful hinges actually do exist in the spectrum, more in the spectrum of purpose than of motivation. And both play a role. So I don't want to, I don't want to neglect motivation, yeah. but purpose being, you know, what lies beyond the motivational spectrum into uh, in service of others, not in service of the self. Love it. And so I think that's always a really important, um, you know, place to start when you're, you know, being, it's, it's about being connected, like forming real connections with others and, you know, I think of my uh, wife, for example, Paige. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I said my wife. I, you know Paige. I know. <laughs> um, you know, Paige has always, she always wants to be more active than she is. That's like the resting state of Paige is like, I want to be doing more, but I'm usually not doing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm not saying this critically. She would say this to herself. Yeah, it happens to all of us. And the couple of times that she's had real success in changing her behavior is when she's paired up with someone or a few other people who she knows are struggling more than her. Oh, awesome. And if she doesn't go in the morning at 6 a.m. to the gym, she knows their experience will be worse. And that really drives her out of bed. <laughs> that really gets her to, you know, to better herself in service of helping other people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she's always tried to, to, to set it up that way now in that you want to do it for you, but you want to do it more for them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's always important to, to keep in mind because it does help you gain that momentum, that habitual momentum that you need um, to change your behavior. So I think purpose in service of others always is a good of the recipe that's the perfect in terms of, sorry no i was just gonna say that's the, that's the perfect it's almost like the end-all be-all because i even i'm not sure that i even really like the word motivation because it's so fleeting um especially if it's based on the the wrong things um i will completely forget the quote and the uh author but it was a writer who said essentially like I don't uh, wait for motivation or inspiration to come and hit me. I just sit down at my desk every morning at 8 a.m. and something happens just because I show up. You know, it's not this mysterious thing that we do. And, and purpose goes beyond just waiting for something to happen. Purpose is something that we intentionally, um, I think when we really hone in on our purpose, it's something that we intentionally recognize and, and go after and that's what makes it so powerful and like you said it's usually the greatest types of purpose are in the service of others which is why it's so much more motivating and it's it's also for me why all the tips and the tricks and the techniques and strategies that people try to use to motivate themselves to be more productive to lose weight to do whatever um, they're so superficial and they, they don't last for a long time or they're up and down because they're not rooted in something that is deeper and lasting and meaningful, 
which just is the thing that that makes the world go round and is the thing that gives us satisfaction and and is also um, interestingly enough the thing that makes us perform at great heights as well yeah absolutely it, it sounds almost cliche in its own right you know mm-hmm. like it's but some cliches exist for for good reason and you know being doing something for others because you know you have this feeling that they would do it for you or because it's in you know a meaningful way to help and contribute to something bigger it it works. And that, you know, this, that, that's why I said the, the notion of a hinge is that book was really based on that sort of this mm-hmm. eye is really bothering me. Yeah. Penny, I have allergies to my you own dog. Allergies to your own dog. Oh, that's rough. I know. Uh, great pun on rough. So here's, I just want to make sure I also comment on you know, the motivational spectrum too, because that's not going to work for everybody. Sometimes you're, you're especially right now in isolation and, you know, the way the world is, those self-drivers are also super important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're always up against it in a way because good behaviors feel bad and bad behaviors feel good most times. Mm-hmm. And so you're always kind of like up against that natural, um, like, paradox in in the world that we (laughs) swim against every day yeah but really when it boils down to it regardless of where you need to fall to be successful on the motivational spectrum i think one rule in particular is really important to follow you're always allowed this is how i you know talk to myself anyway you're always allowed to stop when something reaches a threshold and is no longer sustainable, or you just can't go anymore on the bike, or you can't eat any more of that salad, or you can't like whatever it is, you're always allowed to stop, but you're not allowed to not start, right? You just have to begin. You have to do something. And sometimes people make the mistake of setting this lofty goal right away. And it's so easy to get thrown off by that because you start and then you go, there's no way I can do that. Why did I even get on here? Right. That you, you just trick yourself into this state of learned helplessness. I think the most important thing is just beginning, just doing something. I have a bike like in my line of sight. And I like I always say to Paige and anyone who's asking, like, what, you know, what motivates you to get on the bike every day? Like what, what is it? Cause I will, I'm very consistent with doing it. And for me, ultimately it boils down to the best workout or thing you can do is what is the one you can do. <laughs> like, it's not about, I'm not going on there saying I have to get to 400 calories or it's a failure. I'm getting on there going, I have to start biking. And if I really hate it and it's miserable halfway through, I'm always allowed to stop but I'm not allowed to not start. I I have to start. Right. So I think that's for me always been a successful strategy and in just reducing the pressure, taking the load off of it's this, you know, this mission and everything's on the calendar and has this, you know, that works for some people, but for those really struggling to gain momentum, I think it's non-judgmentally begin, right? If you're trying to write a book, write a sentence. And if you hate how you feel doing it, you can step away, but you started and that's going to linger in your brain. And you're going to start to think about 
what next sentence did that first one lead into or how do I want to change that first one? And that's what's going to build that momentum and, and kind of bring you back. So non-judgmentally starting. Mm-hmm. I think exactly. the scariest, the scariest thing is a blank page. So as soon as you write the, the right. first sentence, you're, you're good. All you have to do is add one to the next, to the next, to the next is those baby steps. I recently um, heard uh, someone's technique of getting out of bed uh, or their mind trick was just, okay, I just need to take a shower and then I'm allowed to go back to bed if I want to. So as soon as you take a shower, you're, you're up, you're ready to go, you're awake, and then you're, you don't really go back to bed. It's kind of like, it's the allowance that you talked about. Okay, I can, I can start it, but I can stop as well. I can go back to bed and finish my day and curl up, whatever. Um, but nine times out of 10, you're going to start. You're going to keep going. You're going to get those endorphins if you're working out. You know, you're good. You get on a roll and then you create the momentum that you didn't have before. And that's why I think creating, lessening the barrier, barriers to entry like you have, you're bike is literally in your living room and you probably have to like walk around it to get to the couch so there's so much less friction for you to just hop on there and and start pedaling away yeah and i think that's what you just one part of what you just said is really key and the way i look at it is you know your best ever performance like my best ever performance on the bike isn't my new baseline Mm. like you can't look at the world that way you can't have a great day and then be like and if i don't do this or better every other day you know something's failing or i'm failing that's just not the way it works so you know go back to that regression line it's it's really about a trend of of momentum in a certain direction that sometimes requires you to have a worse day right to write less words to pedal less distance yeah (laughs) A lot but, but getting getting it going you know is and I, we use this in the, in the national team environment too like the you know one of our mindfulness practices or or keywords was courage last year mm-hmm. and the definition was um feeling some sense of fear and still moving forward and i think you know a lot of times it, it is about that and it may not be a sense of fear it might just be a sense of uncertainty or unwillingness or discomfort but to begin anything, you normally need to have some courage, right? It's not how you would tell your friends you started it. Like that's not how you talk about it out- outwardly, but you know inside there's a bit of courage to getting on that bike for the first time or whatever it is because you're feeling something that's pushing you away, but you're still doing it. If you can just get through that step, I think you're, you're accomplishing a lot towards tomorrow, basically. I think it's a very valuable image that that graph that you mentioned. And I think I'm going to keep it in my mind as well when I'm approaching uh, successes and failures, because the way our minds work, we don't really see it like that. We don't see this little scattered and trending upward, hopefully trending upward motion. We just see like, oh, this and this and this, or we see our most recent thing. And that's mm-hmm. basically what we fixate on. We don't see the whole constellation of the work that we've done. Oh, I just, oh, you were there for this speech. I was just about to share this um, uh, thing that Marnie McBean said on our, um, our recent virtual camp. Yes. yes. So Marnie. Uh, Ma- I notes here on that. Sorry. 
I've got all kinds of notes from it. It was so good. Yeah, it was good. So for those of the people watching um, who don't know, Marnie McBean is our uh, the Canadian Olympic team's chef de mission for, for the uh, Tokyo 2021 Olympic Games. Uh, and so she did a uh, guest appearance at the first day of our virtual training camp. And she was talking about, well, a wide variety of inspirational things, but I loved this image that she gave. She was talking about a to-do list and she's like, as you check off these things, where do all those completed tasks go? Do they go into the garbage? Are they lost forever, you know? And she's like, no, they go onto your done list. And it's like this pile, this resource of all the things that you've done, you've completed, you've learned, and that's, all of those are resources that you can use going forward. So we're so focused often on the to-do list, what we have to do, what we lack, what we're unable to do. When we have this huge list of things that is the foundation of who we are as a person and our abilities and our confidence. So it's so simple. And when you hear things like that, you're like, oh, obviously, like, why didn't I think of that? So jealous that I don't, that I don't yet have this ability to just be like, this is a super clear metaphor. Let me just drop this like a, like a bomb in the middle of this uh, <laughs> talk. I really, I really enjoyed it that. A lot of, yeah. It, it, yeah, and I think that's why, you know, like the, the research would call it vicarious experiences is such a, a common pillar of, of confidence, right? Like just whether it's imagining those things happening or remembering or going back through a journal that, you know, mentions all the ways you've grown and learned and changed in a time period, the mental performance um, coach who works, who worked with uh, Scott and Tessa um, back in, I think it was 2010 mm -hmm. told me this great story about, uh, I think it was, I, I apologize if I get this wrong. It's secondhand told to me, but uh, I think it was Scott like was insistent that they put a grain of rice in a bucket after every training day where they felt they got better. And he somehow, you know, this was kind of like off the radar and it was something that he was just really keen to do. And then the morning of their gold medal skate, uh, he, he took the, the full bucket of rice and put it in front of uh, Tessa's door, hotel door. So when she walked out of the room, the first thing she saw was this bucket full of their growth, basically, okay. right, in, in their mind. And it just had a little reminder note on it that said, we've done the work. And I just thought like, oh my gosh, you know, that, that's how you really draw into that list that Marnie's talking about, that done list, right? Yeah. But all the technology set up to, let us fail here right even to-do lists that you use on your phone or your your computer it's it kind of just goes away yeah so, yeah it's a, it's a that's a i have so many awesome notes the other thing she said that i loved was um uh we don't have time to leave things unsaid mm. well you love that because you had you already had it on your slide the elephant the elephant in the room type deal well, yeah, it did line up well with that message, mm -hmm. but the way she phrases things is just bang on. I was like, that's, you just captured my passion for, for like fierce conversations in one sentence. 
Mm-hmm. That's where it comes from. It's not about being right, being personal, being any of that stuff. It's not about ego. It's about we have an objective and we don't have time to not say these things because this objective is on a very tangible timeline. <laughs> so let's get it done. Absolutely. And I, we see that so much in sport, especially the way that our major tournaments are usually set up. We're sometimes playing back-to-back games. We don't have time to like dally around the issue and like hum and ha and hope that it gets better because it usually probably won't unless you really address it. So yeah, totally. Speak what needs to be said, especially even on the court. It's second to second. You only have literally maybe two seconds to speak to your teammate before they have to like get back on defense. So you say things the way they need to be said and the way they need to be heard, especially in loud arenas. Sometimes it's not always in the right way, but hopefully you have enough uh, trust and connection between you that it's going to be received in the right way. And, uh, and that's what kind of brings it all together um, on the court and off the court in the team environment. And that goes back to our very first question, which is you asked about culture and what makes it up and, that moment that you just described, having very little time between performances to say what needs to be said for people to handle that properly, be flexible, you know, not take things personally, all of that, like that is a, that is a, a key performance indicator type moment in how well a group is gonna do at, a, at an event, right? 100%. And to get to that moment and for it to go well, like for it to be a high performance moment takes so much time and work investing in values, skills, traits, who's going to, you know, who's going to behave what way in this situation. And have we upskilled everybody enough and aligned everybody enough from a value standpoint that, you know, you can kind of some, in some cases, park your own values in service of these values right now. Yeah. Or, or at least have the awareness of how your personal values may uh, stand as, you know, things that are causing you difficulty in this moment. Sure. So, yeah, that's such a pinnacle state of it for a team to be in that 24-hour turnaround. And I think that's why it's so important for such clarity and over-communication of those values and principles and expectations because when you get to that point, you, you don't have time. You often don't have the bandwidth because you're usually using up quite a bit of your energy and mm-hmm. you want to have everything almost working on automatic. So you don't really need to think about it. It's that muscle memory, but in terms of values and, and culture and all that, um, where you know what you need to do, you know what's expected, you know what um, we've all agreed on and and then you do it and that's like high performance in the in a nutshell or high performance in a team especially yeah you live it you know you live it in that moment it's they're not just they're not just words on a page or things we did hypothetically or and i think you have to simulate you need repetition right you need cultural repetitions you need to practice this stuff and we've even had conversations as as staff that you know, one staff member might say, I think we're overthinking this. And, you know, in one case, it was me who chimed in and said, I think we're underthinking this. I think we need to learn how to have this debate, which which to me is more important than whether the debate is worth it or not. Like we as a team need to learn how to have this moment. We need to find them and just like 
sometimes manufacture them in a way <laughs> to, to make sure that we're getting those cultural repetitions. Sure. And it never's perfect. That's the other thing. Like you had that joke about perfection at the beginning. I remember we did, you know, in Belgium, we did that session three or four days before we played on, it was about building empathy for the different scenarios and roles of people in the room. And we had reactions from that, that, that went everywhere from, um, you know, someone who's, who plays in the WNBA uh, saying it was so important for me to hear from people who had already been to the Olympics that, you know, this was going to feel this way. And that's the experience that they were going to have and da, 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 da to the other end of the spectrum of someone saying, I, you know, I, I thought that was totally unnecessary and we were overthinking it. And that's, you know, I think there's some version of that that happens in most groups because there's so much diversity. What really matters though, I think to me is how you handle that dissonance with what you would prefer as the ideal session or thing at that moment to the level where this is a little manipulative. And I, I don't know if I regret doing it, but it, with the junior national team, once I did the worst activity ever on purpose, and I told the staff in advance, and it's, it was terrible. It was not fun. It, 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 the whole nature of it is something I would never do, you know, for real. And the whole purpose was to watch how people react when we're doing something that you don't like. How are you going to handle that? Are you going to shut down and complain and sulk and your body language sinks and you, you de-energize everybody around you? Or are you going to just do the best that you can and be the best version of you in this unideal situation for you personally? And at the end, we simply got them to do their own self-reflection on how do you think you handled not liking that? And I think that's a real thing. Like great culture doesn't mean every session is going to be perfect. And, you know, just because we've had these conversations in the past that if Bryce goes up and presents, you know, bef before a game that everyone's going to love it. And all of a sudden we're all, you know, switched on and this is exactly what I need. I don't think that's realistic, but what is realistic is establishing a culture where you don't uh, suck the energy out of a room and you don't become distracted or distract others simply because this didn't go the way that you wanted. Absolutely. So I think there's a maturity level in there in a culture too, where you, you almost as an individual within the team know that not everything's perfect and suited for you exactly. And there's a regression line too. This one may not be something you love, but the next one might be bang on as an example. And how you handle that difference, I think, is, is a representation of culture in, a, in its own right. Yeah. You're, you're totally touching on a little bit of sacrifice. Like we've talked, we talked about in our, in our last um, conversation on our IG live that we did. And um, as well as an, an awareness, an awareness about what your, your teammates might be going through, not just what you're going through. And also I learned this later on in my career when I realized that coaches have feelings and emotions and their own struggles as well. Um, awareness of what the coach is trying to do and the work that they've done um, to kind of get you to that point or, or what their intention is. And even if it's something wild, like the worst uh, thing ever, uh, worst um, exercise ever that you took those juniors through, um, 
trying to understand where they're coming from and what might be the benefit. Because again, in the game, sometimes you don't have times time to question exactly what's going on, but you have to have the confidence and the trust in the people around you to buy in immediately. Um, that's not the time to, to question things. The exact, um, there's circumstance that happens often in the game, especially for me as a post player. Um, when you're setting a screen or sorry, when you're on defense and you're guarding a screen, uh, as a post player, you're announcing to your guard uh, what kind of screen it is, what we're doing. And um, it depends on who the person is that you're guarding um, and what strategy we've Im implemented. So I'm the one that's communicating and the guard has to trust me to know what side the screen is coming on, what we are doing if it's changing from person to person. They need to hear it and they need to react. And there have been times where they hear and they're like, oh no, I'm already doing this. I don't want, you know? And they're in the middle of the action and like resisting. And I'm like, no, I'm already committed to what we said we were doing. And if you go your own way, it's, it's gonna be too late and it's gonna mess up what we're doing. Even if it's the wrong thing, even if I said the wrong thing and we two do the, the same thing, it's still gonna work out all right or necessarily <laughs> all right. It's gonna be something better than one of us doing one thing and the other person doing the other thing. So it's that, that, yeah. that connection of trust, listening, responding and, and doing. And on the opposite side, when we're both on the, the same page, there's a type of flow that goes into it. And you're, you're creating this, this culture of, I guess it's the essence of the perfect performance, which doesn't exist, but where everybody is bought in, doing the same thing, um, assuming the best of people and um, making up for their mistakes when a mistake does happen, but at least we're making mistakes in the right direction because we are yeah. on the same page. You know what I mean? Totally know what you mean. And, and it's this phrase buy-in, I think is like worth investigating a teeny bit for people mm -hmm. in the leadership space, because like there's stuff that I've done that, you know, I could even predict going in to the room that there's a couple of people who won't be bought in to the philosophy or the way in which we're doing this thing. But in order for me to go in the room with confidence and execute anyway, <laughs> despite that feeling, is having trust in those individuals that they're going to use those skills that you just talked, the awareness of how this is affecting others, the awareness of why this is important on a program level, so forth, right? If we have that trust, you know, it's very, I feel very confident that this isn't going to get derailed by this. And in some cases, the mature thing to do, and we've had people do this in our environment lots of times, is, is to respectfully challenge or question, you know, why we're doing what we're doing if you really reach that threshold of, it's not just that it's not something for me, it doesn't fit my style, it's, I don't think it's good for everybody else either. Right. Once you reach that level of awareness, yeah, maybe you need to challenge and question it. And that's a really good conversation most times, as long as people don't get, you know, defensive or, or whatnot. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned on that I think is really important is, you know, like if I'm going, I'm just using myself as an, as an example, because it's easy, um, you know, because these things have actually happened. <laughs> but if I go in the room and 
you know, I'm going to present on something that's a little bit outside of the box or, you know, I'm trying to put a creative lens on something. There's certain people like yourself that are, are, are so open-minded and, you know, I think have that openness to experience um, mindset uh, or that growth mindset at, at a minimum that it's very, you know, disarming, like for me, right? Like that, I know that this is going to resonate to some degree because, you know, Mer's going to think about this 10 different ways and turn it into something probably better than it was when I walked in. There's a big problem though, if every single person is like that. So it's also important to not get caught up in just because, you know, it made me feel more comfortable with some people that we should start judging the other people because they're not like that. If everyone's the same, we're going nowhere. <laughs> That's just, you know, a fact, I think, of any team dynamic. It's more so about learning the strengths and advantages that these different views and personalities have. So even the person who's in that more pessimistic questioning mindset, nine times out of 10, they've got a really great point as to why they're questioning it. That could benefit everybody else. We just need to find a way to lean into that. I really don't think you're striving to get everyone in the room in that exact same mindset of like, yeah, great, you know, pitch, pitch, whatever. And I'll find a, you know, an optimistic lens on that. I don't think that's going to be successful. I think it's very successful if you have different sort of pockets or pods of perspectives that can work uh, together. And I always love the quote, you know, as a leader, it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. And that's how you get it right is, is actually diversity of perspective, not here's the thing and, and everyone hop on board, you know, uh, blindly. <laughs> so then when you're, go when you're working from that diversity of perspective and you're implementing certain values or trying to build a culture, say you're building it from scratch and you have all these different people with differing perspectives, different traits, skills, whatever, everything we've covered so far. How do you bring that all together and, and focus that. I know we've been going through this a little bit with our own team as far as um, developing our purpose uh, for this upcoming Olympics with this specific team at this specific time. Um, but how, maybe describe how you bring those elements together um, so that everybody is on the same page as far as the spot that we're operating from. I think it's very gradual micro moments mm. um, of safety, of openness. You, you come in with that lens and you're not going to, you know, you, you can't just ask someone to trust you, right? That's, that defies the laws of trust. You know, I, someone once said, um, this phrase always stuck with me, like pretend to trust me until you actually do. And I was like, what a, mind bending thing to <laughs> <laughs> request. Yeah. Um, but I think it's micro moments over time. And, mm -hmm. you know, it depends on what your task is and who your team is, and how much time you have together, but you have to commit to it every day. You got to put a huge premium on finding those micro moments and creating a positive vibe around them when they exist, creating an aura of growth around moments of tension 
Like that's, I think the art of it is what felt like tension to people you frame as growth every single time. And you just continue to sort of reward that, um, that group behavior. You can also, you know, the way that you set set things up, I think can, can really have a positive effect. Um, I love the example of, uh, or the analogy of a lab, like you're not going into a session or a workshop or a, you know, language matters. And I love what a lab represents. You know, a lab is a place to experiment, discover. Labs are very optimistic in that you always go in there looking for a solution, even if it means, you know, something blew up in service of finding that solution. Um, you know, it's, they're not rigid places, they're flexible places, they're, they're try again places. And so I think, you know, establishing that kind of environment is really important too, like really embodying that as a group. Um, you know, I'd even stretch it as far as saying, you, when you picture a lab, you know, you see like the white lab coat and the goggles and you know, I think the group as a whole has a responsibility to be the lab coat and the goggles for other people when, when they put the wrong chemical in the beaker. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Kind of blows up. Like it's your job as other members to, to make sure that person is safe, mm -hmm. right? Like don't leave them without goggles on or, or without a lab coat, or they're not going to try again. And what they just learned is, is what isn't going to work. Right. So we have some confidence that the next thing they try is going to be different. But if we burn them too badly for trying, they won't ever get to that point. So I think setting up that kind of environment is really important too. You know, there's some cases where you just, if the time is really tight, you know, we've had sessions as a team where if it's Carly given a video session, it's like, how much time do we have? What's our turnaround? Yada, yada, yada. And the ratio is like three minutes of player discussion and 27 minutes of here's what we have to do. Mm -hmm. And if there's any, you know, major qualms or issues with that, we can talk about it in the, on the court, or we can talk about it offline. Mm -hmm. So you have to be somewhat flexible in, in this case, but the only reason that, you know, Carly going up and, and having the full ears of and, and attention of people in the room is because in other cases, we've used the laboratory approach and it builds that trust and confidence. And so that moment of authority stands out as this is what's needed right now, not this is what we get every single day. Yeah. <laughs> Someone talking. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense that people are, are kind of more, more open and, and ready to, to contribute and, and connect with something when they know that, it's building towards something better or like we've determined that this is what we need to do right now. So we're going to buy in and, and listen to Carly as she gives this amazing uh, um, presentation. Carly is our, our uh, assistant coach on the Canadian national team for those who, who don't know. Sometimes I just get caught up in our own conversation sometimes that I forget I'm going to put this on the, the internet and people are like, who's Carly, what's going on there? You know? Um, when you were speaking right now, I had some notes, um, obviously, but, um, when you were speaking about buy-in and you were started to talk about that, um, one for actually from one of the articles that you wrote, I don't think it's published yet, but, um, 
you said connections always precede commitments. And that's what made me mm-hmm. think of that when you were talking about those, making those moments where people can connect, whether it's a good thing or it's an intention, but the connections always precede commitments. And that's what um, enables us to, to make a, a buy-in when, when people feel genuinely connected and, and that prompts change because you realize, hey, yeah, I'm connected to this person. They have my back. I have their back. I'll protect them like a white lab coat or goggles when they, they mess up. And, and then that becomes a really beautiful thing. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I believe in that fully like connection, you know, does precede commitment. It's, um, I think it's a big mistake to, to expect commitment without it. Um, it's this is a philosophical question and we won't be able to answer it you know today but i think it's a good one for any any leader anyone trying to influence others to quite to to really like contemplate Mm -hmm. would you rather have 75 percent sureness that you have the perfect plan and program and 25 percent buy-in to it or would you have 75 rather have 75% buy-in, which, you know, basically I think we need to say is trust and commitment and only 25% sureness that it's the perfect plan. And I think that's a really important thing for people to contemplate because very often you can get hung up on this is the exact way that this is going to have to go for us to be successful and you miss all the social emotional strategies required to get people to, to believe in it, to believe in you, to commit, all those other things. And then what does it matter if you have the perfect plan and no one believes in it or feels connected to you? The, the other kind of um, general uh, rule or metric that I think is really good to follow as a leader is you know, if you get stuck in the elevator with someone that you're leading or a member of your team, do you only have like something about your work to talk about or is there more than that? Mm. Right? Like, are you stuck on how's that project going? How was practice? <laughs> you know, what do you think of that drill? Mm-hmm. Or is there a deeper, deeper level of interest that you have in each other? If it's the former, you know, I think you're, you're just not ready or in a place to have full commitment to that very thing that you're talking about. <laughs> you need to be t- talking about other things, other more interpersonal things, um, you know, and really invest in each other before you're really going to get a good answer to how it was practiced. <laughs> oh, oh, look at that. You're, you're, uh, your yeah. camera knows when you're supposed to end podcasts. Right? That's like so crazy how that happened. Let me um, connect to my regular video. That's so funny. Boom. She's back. There I am. But, uh, and it's good too, because I, like the last time I looked at the clock, it was like 248. I was like, okay, we're good. And then I just looked, I was like, 31. Oh my goodness, we need to stop. <laughs> that, was, that was perfect. Just keep going. 
Oh, so good. Well, thank you so, so much. Sorry if I, if, you know, if we're overshared. I, I know it's, uh, I should say this. We're reversing this relationship. Anyone interested? And I'm going to ask Miranda all the questions um, for an inner logic specific conversation. Excellent. Um, Let's do it. In the near future. So for those who are done with my perspective and are like, oh, I liked it when Murr talked. That's the thing that you should tune into. I'm not sure that it's it's going to go that way because uh, I I really enjoy. No, it will. I'm going to make sure. <laughs> I guarantee it. I'm done. I'm, I've shared all I know. <laughs>